You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Inspired to Act is presented by PrimeMed, your leader in continuing medical education. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Running a large institution is a skill unto itself. Joining us to discuss her thoughts about how to make the federal healthcare bureaucracy and other large institutions more effective is the former Secretary of Health and Human Services, the former president of Hunter College in New York, as well as the former chancellor of the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and the current president of the University of Miami, President Donna E. Shalala. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, great to have you here. Before we talk about some of the meat of the subject, which is about the Health Care Act and the rest, I think a lot of our doctors and other healthcare professionals would like to hear a little something about how you got interested in leading big institutions. You've done a lot of them. You were president of Hunter. You were a chancellor of the University of Wisconsin. You're the president of the University of Miami. How did you go from political science into uh, leadership roles like this? What got you going? It's interesting. A lot of this is by chance, being in the right place at the right time. I was on the faculty at Columbia University teaching political science, got my tenure there, and in the middle of my very young academic career, the governor of New York, Hugh Carey, called one day, and I had met him during his transition, and said, what are you doing for the summer? And I said, I have a Guggenheim. And he said, well, he said, you know, the city of New York is in some trouble, and I've got to appoint a board to try to straighten it out. And it's only going to take the summer, and it's, the board's going to be chaired by Felix Rowan, the great merger and acquisitions guy at Lazar Frere. But they don't have anyone that really understands state and local government, and you're one of the experts in the country, and I know you know a lot about New York State. So everybody's going to think I put you on the panel because you're a woman, but it's really because you're the only one that knows what you're doing about <laughs> these issues. Uh-huh. And so he appointed me, and it took more than a summer. It took a whole year, even though I was teaching. I was actually on leave that year because I did have a Guggenheim to write a book. And I wrote in the morning and went and saved New York City in the afternoon with all these very <laughs> prominent Wall Street people. Really? In 76, when Jimmy Carter was elected, he was looking for women to appoint to prominent positions. But I had no particular you know, connections with him a friend of mine was offered a job at HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and she didn't really want to take it. It was the policy job, and she recommended me to Secretary Pat Harris. And Stuart Eisenstadt, who was going to be the head of domestic policy for Jimmy Carter, also called at the same time and said, hey, you want to come down and and work for me? I knew very little about the federal level of government, but the chance to go down into government for a couple of years, Columbia was willing to give me a leave, seemed like an exciting thing to do. Well, it turned out I went to work for Pat Harris because she offered me an assistant secretary's job. You have to understand, I was barely into my 30s. And she offered me a very big job, the big policy job at the department. So I went down and ended up spending almost four years there. And I was on my way back probably to Harvard, not to Columbia. I was offered a job at the Kennedy School at Harvard to teach public policy. And a very prominent person, vice president of the Ford Foundation, called me up. This is a long story, but it gets better. (laughs) Called me up and said, hey, the presidency of Hunter College is available, and a bunch of us think you'd be terrific there. The search is blown up. 
I said, you know, I don't know anything about public institutions. I've barely been in one. And I, you know, have not been more than a program chair, a department chair in academia. I haven't been a dean. I haven't been a provost. You're talking to me about a presidency. He said, oh, come on. He said, you've been running a big part of a government agency. You clearly have administrative skills. Why don't you come up and interview? I went up and interviewed, and they offered me the job. I mean, I was stunned. I was the youngest college president in America. Hunter, of course, had a nursing school down at Bellevue, a wonderful school of social work, long-time ties in the health sciences to the major hospitals. I got to know the people at the Health and Hospitals Corporation, which really piqued my interest about healthcare. I had actually been offered a chance to go to HHS while I was in Washington, but I remember saying to Pat Harris, who was going over to be secretary, you know, I really don't want to spend the time learning healthcare that quickly. I think I'll go back to either Cambridge or to New York. And that's essentially how it happened. I walked into a college presidency. Well, that's very interesting. eight years there and then was actually recruited by a number of the big public institutions, the great research universities. I talked to people at Texas, at uh, Michigan, at Minnesota, and ended up taking the Wisconsin job, which, of course, was a major research institution with a hospital and a medical school and one of the great bioscience centers in the world one of the really world-class research universities. Well, that is a very interesting story. I've talked to a lot of people on the show. You're the first non-MD I've actually had on the show. I've asked each of these people, you know, how did you get to where you were? The stories are remarkably similar. Yeah, they're uh, serendipity. And, uh, you know, you're in the right place at the right time. And the right mentor, too, right? You have no, to have that exactly, right person to help exactly. you. Exactly, and I had mentors all the way along. Wisconsin, of course, I was deeply involved in the health sciences, in medicine, and I was appointed by the Bush administration and by the secretary to the NIH board. So I actually spent a few years on the director's board at the National Institutes of Health, which turned out to be very good since I was at a major research university, but it gave me an entry point into HHS. So first of all, the people down there knew me, but I knew the sciences in particular in Washington and obviously public health in some of the other areas. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me today is Dr. Donna Shalala, and we're discussing how to make big institutions more effective. Let me ask you about the health care bill that just passed. I'm sure you're delighted. Were you surprised, given what the way things looked six weeks ago, that the president and uh, Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, and the others were able to pull this off? No. I always thought they had the votes. There was no question in my mind that they had the votes. The question was, what was the process going to be? I feel it was really unfortunate they couldn't get a bipartisan bill, but the Republicans just made an early decision not to participate and not to allow the president to have a bill that was bipartisan. And frankly, when you have to do these things openly in a transparent way, not in smoky back rooms, the way Lyndon Johnson did it and the way Franklin Roosevelt did it, You know, the parties are going to split like this every once in a while. It's unfortunate for the country because I really think they found a lot of consensus in this bill. You know, the doctors who are listening, there's a lot of medical people listening now. They're obviously very anxious about this. They don't know how this is going to work out for American medicine and for doctors in particular and how it will be implemented. And, I mean, you're really an expert. You are the longest serving HHS secretary. I mean, do you see any problems administering this thing when it comes really right down to doing it? Well, the first things they need to implement are pretty straightforward. They're not easy to do, and that is make sure there are rules for requiring insurance companies to cover kids 
up to 26. Now, whether that's just going to be dependent children or whether it's going to have space for kids that are out of state that are off in graduate school someplace, we don't know yet because we haven't seen the rules. And then there's going to be a huge effort to get people who don't have health insurance because they have a pre-existing condition in a big risk pool. That could be pretty easy if they use the federal employee's health care plan because that plan has a way of implementing that piece pretty quickly. And it's a well-administered plan which is used to having lots of choices for people, and they've got the infrastructure to do that. And I'd be surprised if the department decided to do that on its own as opposed to using an existing platform. The whole point about implementation is to use as many existing platforms as you can. If you're expanding Medicaid, then expand Medicaid. Just pick up a larger portion of the payment that the state has to come up with. If you're expanding the Children's Health Insurance Plan, use those platforms in the states. And in in my judgment, if you're going to take on this issue of an at-risk pool, a national at-risk pool, then you go to the Federal Employees Health Plan, which is for retirees and federal employees, and simply put people on a plan that takes care of that and take the subsidy money and, and administer it accordingly. What do you think this will do to the big public institutions that have been the backbone of our academic system nationally? I mean, certainly you have one of the big ones there, the Jackson Memorial at the University of Miami, and it continues to have its problems like many of these other places do. What effect, if any, will the new healthcare system have on supporting these very, very important institutions? Well, as long as they keep up the disproportionate share money and don't phase it out too quickly, if they get themselves organized, they should be fine. Since so many people are used to using them, once people get insurance, they're not going to be so easily peeled off, though they clearly are going to be attractive to private hospitals, to not-for-profits, and to for-profit hospitals once they get an insurance card in their hand. But we have a generation of two, three generations of people that are only used to using emergency rooms. So the big challenge here is to get them to the right part of the healthcare system on time once they have insurance. And to do that, you have to have entry points. And I've long believed, and I hope it doesn't offend any of the doctors, that we have to put together teams of doctors, nurses, particularly advanced practice nurses, to expand the entry points for this population who, for the first time, are going to have insurance. Now, many of them have been using federally qualified health clinics, other kinds of free parts of the system. What they haven't had is seamless access to specialists. That's what academic health centers are good at. So if we can figure out the entry point, this ought to provide paying patients to all of our hospitals. It ought to reduce the amount of charity care that we currently have in the United States. It's not going to help us in Miami as much as it's going to help in other parts of the country. And that's because we still have a very large percentage of our uninsured population that are not going to be eligible for these subsidies because they don't have legal status. We're running a little short on time, but there's one last thing I really would like to ask you. I read that you're still teaching, still teaching students, presumably political science, and teaching them about the U.S. healthcare system. We hear pessimism among some of the younger folks about uh, going into medicine, the future of medicine in this country. Some people think we're losing our edge, that it's going to Europe. What are you telling your students? Uh, Optimistic or pessimistic? My students are excited about going into medicine, going into healthcare, going into public health. I teach the largest class at the university, almost 300 students this semester in the politics and economics of healthcare reform. 
Uh-huh. So I told them at the beginning of the class that we were going to do health care reform during the course of the semester. And they all laughed. Now they're really excited. <laughs> and, I, and let me assure you, That's my great. students understand the bill. I bet they do. <laughs> I bet they're not going to pass if they don't no, understand and the I bill. I think this generation, generation is terrific. We are seeing some trends of more people going into primary care. I think getting those reimbursement rates up is important. I think academic health centers have to step up a little more. I have a nephew that went to one of the great Ivy League institutions, not Harvard, I should point out, uh, to medical school, and he wanted to be a family doctor, and they kept poo-pooing all the way through. Well, he's a family doctor now. He's doing exactly what he wanted to do. He was a brilliant medical student. I'm excited about this new generation, and we're not getting lesser quality of medical students, let me assure you. We're getting more and more brilliant students who are really caring. So I'm not down on this generation at all, and I don't think we're going to turn them off. Well, that's a nice optimistic point on which to end. I I would like to thank my guest, Professor of Political Science and President of the University of Miami, Donna E. Shalala. President Shalala, thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act. You're welcome. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels, and presented by PrimeMed, the leader in continuing medical education. At PrimeMed, we believe in you, the practicing healthcare professional, and we support your commitment to your patients. Our goal is to give you the tools to stay up to date with the latest developments in your field, whether you treat day-to-day patients and their average and not-so-average illnesses, or patients dealing with diverse chronic conditions. PrimeMed CME programs are designed for you. We know you each learn differently. That's why we offer education in a variety of formats. Live, because you like to interact with peers and faculty. Online, because it's convenient and available to fit your schedule. And in print, because of its portability. Regardless of the medium, PrimeMed delivers knowledge that touches patients. PrimeMed CME is developed through extensive collaboration with leading professional associations, academic institutions, hospitals, technology companies, and over 1,500 prominent faculty. With over 120 live meetings and 300-plus online CME activities, 350,000 healthcare professionals globally trust PrimeMed as their source to stay better informed and educated in today's always-on world. We invite you to join us in person at an innovative cutting-edge meeting and clinical education program. If it's more convenient, visit PrimeMed online. For more information, visit www.pri-med.com. Thank you for learning with PrimeMed.